Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Tom Edwards. Over the next hour, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios in Midori House and from all around the world. This week, we're in the room where it happened, on the foreign desk. He was not the most invigorating speaker. A lot There were a lot of younger black leaders who could rev up a crowd in, in ways that Mandela didn't. Plus, we speak to the artist behind the exhibition, Chorus in Rememory, A Flight. When histories are told from the ground up, it, it changes. Then you find out the missing link of histories, you know. All that and much, much more in the next 60 minutes, here on The Curator, with me, Tom Edwards. We start the programme with our coverage of two natural disasters that struck North Africa last weekend. As time was running out to save those trapped following last Friday's earthquake in Morocco, rescuers were forced to resort to using their bare hands. Meanwhile, King Mohammed VI, who was in Paris at the time of the quake, returned to the country's capital, Rabat, and thanked four countries for their relief efforts, namely the UK, Spain, the UAE and Qatar. For Monday's edition of The Briefing, Monocle Sarah Rowland brought us the voices of some of those involved in the rescue operations. After that, Emma Nelson spoke to Monocle's North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald, and the journalist, Ruth Michelson. My name is Usama Laftimi. I'm the owner of the Plaza Art Space. I'm Moroccan, and I live in Marrakesh. After the earthquake happened, I was shocked by the news about what's happened in the old Medina of Marrakesh and Atlas Mountains. I and my colleague at Moroccan Association took immediate action to help those in need. We were hurt net to see the incredible display of solidarity and support from people across the country. My name is Masinith Alderef. I was born there in Morocco, but I was raised most of my life in Europe. Like It is a terrifying situation that people are going through right now. International organizations are already projecting over 300,000 people that are going to be affected for decades to come. And it is not only the city of Marrakesh. What we're talking about where the people are going to be affected the worst is in the Atlas Mountain, where there's towns that don't even have a name, that don't even have roads to be reached. And these towns have completely collapsed. Towns are hundreds of years old, where the traditional way of living has been there for hundreds of years, now are completely gone. My friend Samira, she has gathered a lot of Moroccan photographers and several photographers and artists that are willing you know, to raise funds for the earthquake in, in Morocco. It is a beautiful way of helping because people will not only be able to get a beautiful piece of art, essentially, but 100% of the money will go directly to supporting the victims. My name is Samira LaRussi. I'm currently based in London. Both of my parents were born and raised in Morocco. The tricky thing is in the mountains is that there is such a lack of infrastructure and the government there have been amazing. They're really making waves with trying to develop the areas. But because people have been living in the mountains for so many centuries, they're completely independent. You know, they have their own ways of moving around, their own lifestyles that are very different to the cities. Just last night, a good friend of ours is a Moroccan singer who's very well known. She herself drove back to her village to go and see what was going on. And she got up there and there was nothing. My Arabic teacher is from Wazazet, which is a town in the south. And he said, I'm outside with my wife and my child and we're all fine, alhamdulillah. But he immediately followed that with, 
However, I've lost four people on my mother's side and seven people on my father's side and the rest of my family is still under rubble. My name is Olivier Marty. I'm one of the two co-founders of Studio Keo. It's, it's, it's really a, a huge pain for all of us to imagine those valleys and some of them no one speaks of. I mean, heavens and earth, they were very modest, people were very poor, but there was an ecosystem of water, farmland, villages, which we cannot imagine, which will be lost forever. Some personal testimonies there of people losing whole families in the earthquake. We're listening to That Was Mary Fitzgerald, who's Monocle's North Africa correspondent. A very good afternoon to you, Mary. Good morning. So good afternoon, Mother. We're talking about the, the latest here. We have rescue organisations saying that the first 72 hours after a quake are pretty critical when it comes to saving mm. lives. And after Monday night, um, the survival rate drops to 5 to 10%. We are in, in, in a few vital hours, aren't we? Yes, indeed. And actually, some people would say that it's the first 48 hours that are crucial. Um, If you think back to the Turkey um, earthquake in in February and how immediately, you know, there was this real rush in terms of rescue efforts. What happened in Turkey is obviously very different to what has happened in Morocco in that some of your interviewees detailing how difficult it is to reach some of the worst hit areas that are in the mountains, in the high atlas, very remote poor infrastructure, which of course has complicated um, the relief and and rescue efforts. However, um, another complication is, and it's been top of the news here in France, is the fact that uh, Morocco, unlike uh, Turkey in February and unlike other countries that have been hit by earthquakes in recent years, it um, seems reticent in terms of uh, accepting uh, assistance from outside. You've mentioned that it has accepted assistance from Spain, Britain, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. Very noticeably, it has not yet sought assistance from France. And this has been really um, a huge part of the discussion here this morning in France, given the significant Moroccan diaspora here, 1.5 million and many of whom are, are dual nationals. Uh, the French foreign minister, Catherine Colonna, was on French radio this morning acknowledging um, that, that this has complicated things, but, but basically pleading that it not be made uh, much of a controversy. But everybody's asking, you know, why uh, Morocco has, um, has not sought French um, help at this point. Here in Marseille, the mayor of Marseille, because we have a large Moroccan diaspora population here, he has been saying since Saturday that uh, local firefighters are on standby to go to Morocco when Morocco gives the go-ahead. And that has not been been given. It has also complicated efforts by French NGOs. Now, the reasons for this uh, would appear to be, you know, the strained relationship that France and Morocco has had over the last year or so, largely to do with the Western Sahara issue. France hasn't even had an ambassador in in Morocco for several months now. Um, But many questions here in France in terms of whether this might change. And again, underscoring the the urgency of of the the relief and rescue effort. Indeed. I mean, we have the foreign minister, Catherine Colonna, um, saying that Morocco is a sovereign country. It can choose to prioritise the arrival of support regarding the countries who are available, including France. I mean, how much is France smarting at this? 
I think France is very much uh, smarting. Obviously, Colonna has to be uh, quite diplomatic in terms of how she discusses this, but others who have been interviewed in, in French media today have been uh, more forceful um, in terms of raising questions as to why uh, this remains the case uh, today. Monday, um, a number of days after the, the earthquake, there are representatives from French NGOs who've been quite critical of um, of the Moroccan response so far because, again, they're insisting, they're ready to go, they're, they're underscoring the urgency um, of the, the time frame uh, available here. And uh, so there's a lot of frustration and there's frustration as well um, on the on the Moroccan side, at least on the NGO side, it would appear, because, of course, this is about official uh, permission being given by the, the Moroccan authorities. Mary Fitzgerald, thank you so much indeed for joining us on the line from Marseille. Well, listening to that was the journalist Ruth Michelson. She's in Istanbul and has been covering uh, Morocco extensively this weekend. Very good afternoon to you, Ruth. Good afternoon. And it is a bare few months since you and I were talking about what was happening in Turkey. I mean, from what you've experienced in the coverage of Morocco, how does it bear comparison to what happened a few months ago? I mean, I think that this discussion about speed of response and those crucial first few hours that um, that Mary was pointing out are entirely correct. This is an essential period of time um, where there is the possibility of finding people alive. I have, however, unfortunately spoken to experts in the kind of housing that um, is prevalent across these very remote villages in the Atlas Mountains, um, which is mud brick housing. And this particular expert said that this increases the chance of suffocation um, for the residents of those homes when the buildings collapse, which unfortunately makes them a lot more deadly um, in an earthquake, um, particularly one of this size. And so that would be a major difference. Um, In Turkey, we were talking about corruption, for example, in the building sector and how that overlapped with the enormous loss of life. Um, But certainly in in the discussion of accepting foreign aid, um, uh, even the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, noticed these awful parallels between what happened um, in in Turkey and in northern Syria earlier this year and offered help to Rabat, um, saying while he was at the G20 that Turkey would help with all means if Morocco accepted the offer, which it's yet to do. Indeed. I mean, it, uh, is there surprise in Turkey at the fact that Morocco has accepted um, help from only four nations so far, Spain, the United Kingdom, the UAE and Qatar? I think that there is surprise across the board internationally and confusion, um, especially given the very challenging nature of this aid response. A lot of the aid needs to reach areas very high in the Atlas Mountains, which can only be reached by helicopter or even in some cases from the, the civilians, the citizens trying to get to their own relatives on foot. And it's entirely possible that Morocco simply just doesn't have the resources to hand enough helicopters, for example, uh, to make those journeys. Um, And that there is a a pressing and immediate need for help from other countries. And it is confusing um, on an international level why um, there has been this, this rather slow speed Um, of response and also slow speed to accept only a small portion of the international aid offered. Indeed, we are seeing signs of of rapprochements occurring. I mean, we have Algeria now opening its airspace to help Morocco. That is a step forward. 
That's quite a, exactly. It's a huge shift in the relations between these two countries. They've essentially cut uh, relations for the past two years. Um, Algeria announced that it would open its airspace. It also offered aid, which that offer apparently um, has gone unrecognized by Rabat. Um, but uh, yes, the uh, the opening of the offer of airspace and the uh, the tone of the discussion that we've seen coming out of Algeria around the importance of helping what they describe as a brotherly country is an enormous shift in relations between these two countries. Also last weekend, Storm Daniel caused devastating floods in Libya that broke dams and swept away entire neighbourhoods. In the coastal city of Derma, normally home to about 100,000 people, more than 5,000 are known to have died and a further 10,000 people are feared missing or dead. The United Nations has called the deadly floods a calamity of epic proportions. On the Globalist programme on Thursday, Monocle's Georgina Godwin spoke with Anas Algamati, director of the Sadek Institute, a think tank and research centre based in Tripoli. Georgina began by asking Anas to describe the scale of the devastation. Well, it's it's something of epic proportions that the modern history of Libya has never seen. I think it's on par with the scale and destruction of, um, in fact, it probably outpaces the scale and destruction in terms of the force of the blast of those two dams, of even the bombs that hit Nagasaki. So at this stage, people are just walking around debris-strewn streets. There are displaced residents, something to the tune of around thirty to 40,000, which is around half the population that are wading through murky waters, about the quarter of the city is still submerged in water. Many of them after now, 96 hours, are still looking for their loved ones. <coughs> Many are desperate for closure across the country because of the, the connectivity of this city to the rest of the, of the residents of the country. People are combing through social media memorials and looking for the names of their family or their friends. Some are still clinging on to hope that they, they found a young baby last night that they were able to recover. Um, I mean, others are just walking around the city amid the ruins, kind of motionlessly stare, staring at the at the ocean for signs of their loved ones that may come up on shore. It's something, uh, you know, the weight of this tragedy uh, is, is being felt across the country and, um, you know, far from their homes now, people's lives have been upended in a way that will never be recovered. And of course, it's extremely challenging for responders to try and coordinate this rescue effort in a country already riven by civil war. Let's remind ourselves that the, the NATO since the NATO-backed Arab Spring uprising toppled Gaddafi in 2011, there's been internecine conflict in Libya. Currently, the country has two rival governments, one in the capital, Tripoli, another controlling the country's east that's based out of the city of Benghazi and it is in the east where the worst flooding occurred in that coastal city of Derna. I wonder Anas how far the political instability contributed to this disaster. Clearly climate change was was also to blame but the fact that the country really has a broken infrastructure must have been significant. It's absolutely critical to remember this. We can't blame mother nature for what happened. This wasn't an act of God. Those floods that we saw and the rainfall that was predicted by meteorologists that we knew about this when it was going through Bulgaria, through Greece, through Turkey. They had ample time and the officials, the Libyan National Army, the officials that were in charge of Derna watched callously as those dams were being filled slowly for hours and hours before. They put out messages to the local residents of Derna, the security director of the Edenay, enforced a curfew 
on the night of September 10th, beginning at 7 p.m. They're now conducting misinformation and disinformation by trying to put out the opposite that is circulating through social media. The LNA has proven to be an, an callous and indifferent and an incompetent authority, not only before this tragedy, but in the face of this tragedy. Because when those two blasts took place and half the population was displaced and the other half potentially is either missing or under the water or still searching for its family, this is now the, the, the most difficult problem is trying to coordinate this uh, humanitarian efforts, which require international aid, require NGOs and activists and volunteers to be coordinating on the ground. To get that vitally needed aid into Derna, you've got to coordinate directly with the most capable groups like the Red Crescent, like the UN agencies, and not these unreliable officials, because they know the community, they can access the hard hit areas, and they're dedicated to, to, to the humanitarian priorities of that community, not those power games. The LNA is only interested in command and control. It's not interested in, in genuine relief coordination. And that's where this failure gets to the heart of this crisis in Libya that has gone on for far too long. This is not only a city that is reeling today. It's been reeling from trials and tribulations over the last several years. It was conquered in 2018 through a siege that the leader of the LNA, Khalifa Haftar, described as a choke of the city. It left a quarter of its citizens last time around in 2018 dead, in jail, displaced, or injured. Many of those that are in jail are under the water right now, and we don't know who they are, how many they may be. Their families have no idea where they may be. The flood, you know, the floodwaters might recede on this, but there's a lot of mistrust that remains. And what we know from the ground by speaking to people there is that only the intelligence apparatus is working tirelessly to ensure that those that are walking around don't speak to the media, don't put their names out on social media or to international media. It's a power game that's happening right now that is causing a lot of grief to those 30,000 that are really vulnerable right now. They need water, sanitation, they need uh, um, hygiene equipment. And most of this is now being held up by the petty games of tinpot autocrats that have been around now for a decade, ensuring the suffering before this and will emphasise the suffering in the hours that are most critical. And are we seeing rescue teams from countries allied to the different warring parties coming to help everyone or just the side they back? I mean, for instance, uh, Haftar's forces who hold the East, they're backed by Egypt, Russia, the UAE and Jordan. Are those countries coming in to help the East or are they helping across across the country well it's the it, it's these countries that were directly to blame for the bombing of Derna in 2015 and 2017 eric prince when he was working for one of those patrons the uae uh, uh, conducted a campaign that was unprecedented in the region droned it from the sky destroyed much of that critical infrastructure that we're looking at floating now in the rubble uh, the egyptians have sent in the military a military is designed to kill people, not save people in this case. And they're hampering the efforts because most of the equipment that they're bringing in is now drudging some of those roads that are needed by the aid agencies to access the city. Um, there is no coordination. There's just command and control. And that's where the problem is. We know that international journalists like Amr Salah Haddin, Egyptian-Canadian, uh, turned up yesterday in Benghazi airport and had his cameras confiscated. We know that others that are trying to get into the city are now getting, getting vetted. We know that an aid convoy that came from Tripoli yesterday had to pass through Russian checkpoints in the city of Sirt, Wagner Group checkpoints, the very same individuals that wreaked havoc on Tripoli in 2019 are now wreaking havoc on the, on the vital aid that is getting in. That fragmented nature, but ultimately what has been left behind as a system in eastern Libya is directly contributing to the death of now and the and, and the disease that will most likely start spreading 
in this malignant state of what we have in, in Dedna over the next 72 hours, it's it's not only an inadequate response or a lack of preparation. This is a man-made one before the dams broke. It's a man-made one now after the dams have broke. And, and rather cynically, it does suit then both sides for the, the citizens of, of Derna really just to be wiped off the face of the earth. I think they're happy to rule over the rubble. Might this huge tragedy bring the country together? I think this is a beautiful testament to the people of Libya that are, and as you see the videos circulating on social media, there are people driving from every single corner of the country. And what it does to me and what it shows is that Libyans were never divided. There was no war between the East and the West. There was a civil war in the East of the country between the East and the East. There was a civil war between the West and the West in 2019. But the reality goes even further than that. Those sides brought in mercenaries, Russian Wagner Group mercenaries that were brought in, were fighting uh, on other on other stages, Turkish uh, military forces and mercenaries that they brought in. Libyans were watching by as if they were watching from the audience or spectators in the stadium. The Libyan people themselves are not divided. They're working tirelessly and they're the kind of only beacon of hope and light amidst the darkness and amidst the rubble. So I think that might be the case. Where we fail to understand it now at a political level is if they try to unite these two disparate halves, as if that will reconcile what's happened. Libyans don't need reconciling temporal autocrats. They don't need people that are being investigated for war crimes like Khalifa Haftar to get another eighth attempt to make a unity government and block elections for 10 years. Blocking elections is what caused this incident. Mm. Several weeks ago, there were supposed to be local elections in, Benha- in Dedna. It was blocked by a parliament in the east of the country that has blocked and suffocated elections for 10 years. What would those people have been able to do had they elected responsible local officials that they know by name, that they lived amongst, and that would be with them in this tragedy? That's the, that's the price of, of, of autocracy. That's what happens when you play these games for too long. Mm, and I mean, clearly, as well as the neglected infrastructure, climate change has had a huge role to play in this. Uh, according to the UN, Libya is the only country yet to develop a climate strategy. Did that make the country more vulnerable? And will it spur it on to be more environmentally aware? I mean, is that even possible when there's no one functioning government? It's a very true point. We're not immune from that in North Africa, in Libya. I mean, we're a connected region. I think the problem with this is that you need a mosaic. You need every single layer of the, of the from the governor to the governed, to be able to work on this. And, and I can say very proudly that the University of Sabah in southern Libya had published open source material on this on this dam and said that an extreme weather incident like we just witnessed over the last several days would have caused untold casualties and tragedy in eastern Libya, specifically in Dedna. We have other uh, parts of the country that are also now similarly being affected. What we do have on a, on a governor level is incompetence and callousness at a level that I cannot describe. The pumps, the copper pumps and the wiring that should have been protecting the citizens of Dedna in those two dams had been stolen. The money that was being placed to try to put a reconstruction plan and a maintenance plan for that dam was not being spent. It was being held up for kickbacks through local corruption and corruption at the, le- at the level of the Libyan National Army. It's an endemic problem, but you have people that are capable. You have people that want to engage on this because they're the ones that, who will suffer. They're, their children are the ones today that are waking up without families. They're the ones that are looking for, their, for the remnants of their families amidst the rubble and amidst the ruin. But the officials themselves were never elected by Libyans. They're appointed by internationals who have given them a lease of life that no Libyan across the country would give them. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. 
Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. For the next few weeks, the Foreign Desk programme is bringing listeners a special In the Room series, speaking with those present for some of the biggest political moments in history. This week on the show, Andrew Miller speaks to some of the key players involved in the secret talks that led to the release of Nelson Mandela, who, on the 11th of February 1990, walked out of Victor Vesta prison in Cape Town after 27 years behind bars. Greg Myrie is a national security correspondent for NPR who was posted to South Africa in 1987 and who witnessed the former president's highly anticipated freedom walk. Andrew began by asking Greg how he ended up covering Mandela's eventual release from prison. Yeah, Andrew, I was a young reporter with the Associated Press and they sent me to South Africa in 1987 and I was thrilled to be there to be covering this dramatic story. But when I got there, the white government was very much in control and the white security forces seemed to not be challenged in any significant way. Um, there was a state of emergency. There had been unrest for the previous couple years. So we were seeing lots of turmoil, but um, there was no sense that apartheid was near an end until a few months before uh, February 11th, 1990. And that's when F.W. de Klerk came to power, really the previous August, and uh, just started making dramatic changes from day one and gave a big speech on February 2nd to Parliament, the opening of Parliament in Cape Town that year, announcing he would make some very sweeping changes toward ending apartheid, including the release of Nelson Mandela, though he didn't give a specific date. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party is being rescinded. (laughs) People serving prison sentences merely because they were members of one of these organizations will be identified and released. In this connection, the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. Was that announcement of de Klerk's the first inkling you had that Mandela was going to be freed? Well, in October of 1989, de Klerk, again, who'd just been in office for a couple months at that point, released several, I believe it was seven, of Mandela's prison colleagues, other older members of the African National Congress who'd been in prison 20 plus years. It was sort of this trial run. They got out of prison. The African National Congress was allowed to hold its first legal rally in decades. And it was in this huge soccer stadium in Soweto, the black township just outside Johannesburg with 80 or so thousand people. I actually met my wife that day. But uh, aside from that, this was a trial run. They were going to see what, how this worked. You know, was the country going to explode into chaos or could it be managed? So you got that inkling that de Klerk was moving in this direction. And then everybody was awaiting this February 2nd speech in 1990 at the opening of parliament to see how far he would go. He made very clear then with that speech, he was going to go all the way and made clear he was going to try to end apartheid. So at the specific moment when Mandela walks out into the view of the world's cameras and that huge crowd of people as a free man, where were you? 
So I was in Cape Town in front of City Hall. He walked out of of prison outside Cape Town. There was a small group of people there. I was, as I mentioned, with the Associated Press. We had some photographers there, but we knew that was mostly a photo op where Mandela and his wife, Winnie, came out. He raised his fist. And a salute from Mr. Nelson Mandela, his wife, Winnie, greeting the people outside the fences of the Victor Verstappen Prison. And then he was going to come speak on the balcony of Cape Town City Hall. And so remember, this was still formally a white city at this point. And yet this massive black crowd had gathered and it was called the parade grounds, but it's essentially a big parking lot out in front of, of City Hall, just anticipating Mandela's arrival. So this was a Sunday afternoon and I got out, I believe, at like three o'clock and then everybody was waiting and they saw him on TV being released from prison, but he didn't immediately come there because the crowd was so massive. And even as he was driving in, people were banging on his car. He was kind of feared, as he said, I was going to be killed by love. And so it was hours, twilight, in fact, before he actually showed up at Cape Town City Hall. They were so fearful for his security because the African National Congress didn't want the white police handling security, feeling that could lead to fighting with the black. But the ANC didn't have their own security forces. So think of it as sort of this crazy, massive rock concert with minimal security, and you just didn't know how it was going to play out. And that's why they kept him away for several hours. So when he does finally make his appearance to speak in Cape Town, what kind of view did you have? I was in the sea of of humanity there. And again, just sheer electricity that you could feel in the crowd. But you were squeezed in like sardines. You couldn't move right or left. I couldn't get out. This is pre-cell phone. So I'm I'm figuring, how am I going to hear this? How am I going to dash out of this crowd, get to a payphone and call <laughs> my office? That was my thinking. So he appears at sort of twilight on the balcony at City Hall in Cape Town. And he had these kind of funny glasses, these big oversized sort of square lenses. And as it turned out, he'd uh, left his reading glasses at prison. He hadn't brought them with him. So he needed to borrow his wife, Winnie's reading glasses to read his opening remarks there. And the crowd just exploded. Um, you know, there's no other way to describe it. I salute the African National Congress. It has fulfilled our every expectation in its role as leader of the great march to freedom. Remember, nobody had seen him. The white government thought that they would lessen his reputation, lessen his myth by not showing pictures or not providing his words during his 27 years in prison. And the government, the white government of F.W. Clerk, released this photo of him the night before. And he's sort of standing there stiffly in a suit, but looking very, very different. He was a young, rugged boxer Mm. in his 40s who'd gone to prison. And now he was a 70-year-old man looking very distinguished, very polished. But we still didn't know what kind of physical shape he would be in or what he would sound like until he delivered those remarks. So when you were finally able to get your thoughts together, locate a payphone and try and file some sort of report of what had occurred, what did you end up telling them? What did you make of his opening remarks? Well, 
27 years in prison was sort of like a political finishing school for Nelson Mandela and his colleagues. They had been discussing, debating democracy, economics, global relations for 27 years. These were educated men, teachers and lawyers. And Mandela was very much, I mean, he had been the leader of that group. He was a lawyer. He spoke in very lawyerly terms. He was not the most invigorating speaker. A lot There were a lot of younger black leaders who could rev up a crowd in, in ways that Mandela didn't. But I thought he was the perfect man for this moment because of all the, the moral force he brought to this. But also it was, everything was thoughtful, measured. His cadence was was very uh, deliberate. He was a lawyer talking about the way to rework a future South Africa. He wasn't trying to rev up a crowd which would respond to almost anything he said. In the weeks and months following his release, especially as the prospect of him becoming president grows ever more inevitable, he is probably the most discussed, almost certainly the most admired individual on the planet, and reasonably so. In your position as a you know a young reporter for an organisation like the Associated Press, how accessible was was he or his organisation? How helpful were they to people trying to cover this story? Uh, very, I would say. In fact, um, you know, he got out on a Sunday evening. He went and stayed with the home that night of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And so at 9 a.m. on uh, Monday morning, less than 24 hours after Mandela had been released, journalists were called over there where there were probably a few dozen of us. We sat on the grass in this beautiful, shaded, leafy garden at the Archbishop's home. And Nelson Mandela emerged at 9 a.m. in a suit and tie. And in fact, as I talk to you here from my home in Washington, I have a picture above my, my desk here at home that I took that day. And it shows a very serene Nelson Mandela in a gray suit and a light blue shirt and a navy blue tie and a white pocket scarf looking like he's been doing this all his life. And he's been in prison fatigues for the past 27 years. And yet he felt very comfortable. And we were able to sit there and, and speak to him from a distance of just a few feet. We were sort of sitting in the grass as he was sitting behind a little table. And sort of over time, they kind of leaked out the kinds of discussions he would have, the way he made friendships with his white jailers over the years, the way at certain times uh, as he got nearer in the final years, as he moved toward his release, they would take him out late at night and drive him around Cape Town so he could sort of see what modern society looked like because he hadn't seen it. He talked about pulling into a gas station in the middle of the night and getting out and these two attendants, black uh, gas station attendants looking at him, sort of scratching their head. <laughs> One can only imagine the kind of conversation they would have had afterward. Is that Nelson Mandela? It's like, no, man, what would Nelson Mandela be doing at a gas station at two o'clock in the morning? The guy's been in prison for 25 years. And yet it was Nelson Mandela. So that was the thing you always wanted to try to get these amazing personal stories out of them. And they would occasionally leak out, but he, he kind of stuck to his message. Monocle on Design this week brought us a wrap from Paris Design Week. And in the episode, Nick Manise caught up with Studio KO's founders, Carl Fournier and Olivier Marty, who are expanding the firm's footprint with a new range of objects, artworks and homewares. The collection, Loyer de K.O., is dedicated to unique handmade pieces made in small batches. 
Let's hear from Carl and Olivier talking to Nick. Hi, I'm Olivier. I am the O of the KO. I'm one of the two founders of, uh, of Studio KO. And I am Carl, so I'm the K of the KO and the other founders. I mean, uh, Olivier, we're, we're here. It's, it's Paris Design Week and we're in your studio. You've unveiled, I guess, part of a collection that you've been working on uh, for the past year or so. Tell us a little bit about L'Oeil de Cao. L'Oeil de Cao is a collection and the expression of various collaborations with artisans that Carl has always been dreaming to develop with one of our talented collaborators, Nathalie, uh, for a bit more, more than a year. So Carl will, will be very good at explaining the objects. But as far as I can say, um, is that this relates very much to our practice more in general, not just an object, uh, on the way we approach uh, architecture and design, because it's extremely related to the power of the hand, the singularity of characters, um, which are expressed in those objects, because each artisan um, expresses something extremely personal that could never be replicated, industrialized, or produced in a big quantity. And it, it speaks very much to our practice in architecture. Each time we were doing a project that was fabricated in this manual way, we were realizing how rich it was that the artisan doesn't only execute, he interprets. So it's really the idea that to fabricate um, an architecture, a drawing, a detail, a plan or an idea is not only about executing what is specified, but is about adding on another layer um, which is a real interpretation. In other words, the moment it starts to be fabricated, it brings it somewhere else. When this project started to be in the stage of development with Carl and Nathalie, um, all the artisans that they entered in contact with were extremely um, positive and, 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 and enthusiastic because many of them knew our work um, as 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 probably ones of the few architects who really speak this language. So that's why the echo and the feedback from those guys and, and from everyone, all those, most of them are French artisans or European, um, were extremely easy and, and they, all of them, but they responded yes. Even the ones who didn't want to produce, didn't want to sell, um, they were enthusiastic when we proposed this to them. I mean, Carl, tell us a little bit about the evolution. How did, how did this project grow and, and come to be? It's people that we met by, by chance. Like, like for example, uh, Marie Lautrou, she, she, she lived in Paris, really close to, to us. And she, um, she's um, potter, so it's uh, sandstone. It's really simple material. Uh, it's not porcelain, it's not fragile, it's really um, rough. She asked uh, young uh, people uh, out of school to come to, to her workshop and to design and to draw on plates like this. So each plate is unique because it's, it's a drawing by a, a young child and they receive 10 euros by plate when the plate is sold. So it's something really local and even in a social uh, consideration, it's really something good to, to involve uh, people around you and especially young people so it's one of the reasons we decided to collaborate and it's emotional yeah it has it's a, poetic it and has a it's social character because it participates to a community it's not only beautiful it's meaningful so yeah. it's, it's building i guess 
community as much as it is making objects. You you talk about so many of these artisans are are working by hand, trying something a little bit experimental, whether that's having, uh, you know, children, I guess, create the artwork that ultimately becomes uh, a a plate or combining weaving with with lacquer. How does this, I guess, also reflect your approach as an architecture and design studio? How important is that working by hand and that experimentation? It's always the same question of legacy and uh, and, uh, what you're going to do with the tradition we receive and uh, we receive from the past and how we can transmit that to other generation and to be sure that it will be transmitted we have to uh, use each generation has to to find a way to use this whole techniques otherwise they disappear so that's that's the same in architecture for example, in, in Morocco, we use a lot of clay and uh, earth. And um, because of that, it's technique that, that won't disappear. They were about two, but because of architects like us, maybe they will continue to next generation. So it's the same thing, but uh, apply to uh, simple objects. I mean, tell us about this, this lack of yeah, yeah, this is a, a piece from uh, Lucie Damon. It's two obsessions she has. She's collecting old fabrics she finds everywhere on flea market or on auction and she's obsessed as well with old techniques of lacquer from Japan and we ask her to mix the two obsession <laughs> and try to see what it's gonna do and then we have this result so it's incredible it's textile it's a fabric but at the same time it's solid you can put things in it uh, because with the lacquer uh, techniques it becomes solid it's a really mix the, 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 the of two different things and at the end it's produced something really unique what's interesting is that the lacquer because it's soaked in by the grid the textile from far it looks like tar like oil so it almost looks like tar and when you get closer you understand it's not tar it doesn't smell anything as bad it's lacquer so it's it's the real quintessence of rough and rich. It's lighter than it seems visually. So it's a very surprising collection of objects. Yeah. I think gradually there will be more um, uh, forehands pieces like the artisans creating for KO, all KO designing for the artisans, something done together that would be uniquely sold at Loi de KO. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. On the Monocle Daily this week, we caught up with the poet, artist and filmmaker Julian Knox, who spent a year travelling around European port cities to collect snapshots of black communities across the continent. Co-commissioned by London's Barbican Centre and we present, the result is an exhibition entitled Chorus in Rememory of Flight. The film installation is accompanied by haunting choral voices, speaking to the ways in which music aids the preservation of cultural memory. Let's have a listen. The idea is, what does it look like to collaborate, to build a chorus across the I world? But when you're speaking to power, that's a different type of flight into the fight, right? The work is called Chorus in Memory of Flight, and it's looking at the lived experience of the black diaspora in seven European cities, uh, port cities to be specific, um, and thinking through all the histories that have brought us through to Europe and the ways in which we've come in. So thinking about flight, 
and how we move in contemporary, I guess, cultures. And then also what were the pre, I guess, histories that brought us here as well. So when you think about colonial histories, but also before then, you know, Africans were coming to Europe. And so it was this kind of idea of doing a sort of listening practice in each city of everyday people, artists, um, choirs, and just kind of spending time with them and listening to them and whatever comes out, I then stitch it together to make the work. I love the idea of like remembering and that's sort of like me um, loosely quoting Toni Morrison and Lorna MacDonald, um, the book that I cannot base the work off of, which is called Big, Big Drum um, from Karaku, I believe. The subtext of the book is called Praise Songs in Memory of Flight. So that's the kind of, I borrowed her title, like Chorus in Memory of Flight. But this idea of um, going into a place and completely just listening to the histories and to what black people hold in those um, spaces um, was kind of borrowed from her thesis. And the idea was to not reject, but to kind of move away from the neatness of how um, black history is told in the West and kind of lean into this idea of people's memory, how they remember themselves coming, how they remember themselves living, how they remember themselves being alive. When people do that, they do that in a way that is uplifting. And it, when histories are told from the ground up, it, it changes. Then you find out the missing link of histories, you know, like, for example, this idea that a Portuguese man went to Sierra Leone and discovered Sierra Leone. It's kind of it's kind of crazy, you know. You then realize people were there before then, you know. But you get these stories through remembering. Or when you go to Antwerp, there's hands everywhere. Like just this idea of like, just hand sculptures, hands chocolate, like chocolate hands. And I found that really bizarre because um, when you think about Congo and what the Belgians did in Congo, like cutting people's hands, and then they saw chocolate hands. It's just wild. So these stories, if you look at it from, I guess, a Belgian perspective, it's a myth from um, a character called Drodo. But then if you look at it from the perspective of uh, the diaspora, it, it plays in their head that there is a history that connects with hands in Belgium. So these stories come out. Um, these are the kind of things, you know. We are one. We are one. What's left of us? You're listening to The Curator. Vienna famously has vineyards and swathes of perfect arable land within the city limits. And for about a year now, the city's forestry and agriculture department, which owns around 2,000 hectares thereof, has been moonlighting as an organic farming business, selling its products from flour to lentils to linseed oil and apples. In this week's episode of Tall Stories, Monocle's Alexei Koryalov visited some of the production facilities to talk to the people behind a growing concept. Weite Teile des unbewaldeten Gebietes der Lobau werden landwirtschaftlich genutzt. 
This mid-1980s promotional film about Lobau, a protected nature reserve along the Danube River, highlights what many Viennes may not be aware of to this day, that their city is an agricultural powerhouse. You would know it from wondering it's densely built up in a district, but a quarter of Vienna is actually farmland, and the biggest farmer is the city itself. We do own um, roughly 2,000 hectares of agricultural fields in Vienna and in the surrounding regions of Vienna. And we also do own about 40,000 hectares, a bit more than 40,000 hectares of forests. And in those forests, we're managing wildlife. And in this management, we do have some hunting and we do have some game that accumulates and we bring this game into our production chain. Vienna began to cultivate its crops in the 1800s as a way of ensuring a steady food supply for its hospitals and other facilities. But it was only last year, more than two centuries later, that Vienna's Department of Forestry and Agriculture decided to sell its produce commercially under the brand name Wiener Gusto. Katharina Scheibenhofer is the manager. All right, let's get into the... Your products. So we have some of them in front of us. If you can sort of walk me through the lineup, what do we see in front? Of us? Yeah, well, we we see here the first is um, our lentils, the dry lentils. We also have those lentils already parboiled in a tin can. We also do have um, wheat flour. We do have rye flour, and this year we're about to harvest um, some new flowers. So whatever you desire to do in your kitchen, if you're baking um, very fine pastries, if you're baking cakes or you're making pasta, you're making very traditional dishes um, in Austria, we do have the right type of flour for each and everything you can imagine. So it's all started with our flowers. And of course, we do have some oils, for example, our flax oil. And last but not least, um, what we see is our uh, game products. Those are our meat products based from our hunting. We do have bull, we have roe deer and red deer, and that's also in organic quality. Mm. It is believed that that makes the city of Vienna the only capital city in Europe to run its own food brand. But Katharina Scheibenhofer says they're not doing this for the money. There is a higher goal. We are doing that in order to lift the living quality of Vienna for everyday citizens. We're doing this for our citizens. And we see in the last couple of months, um, everyone that gets to know our brand and what we're doing and that it's all organic and it's from city-owned fields and, and everyone involved is a part of the city of Vienna they're quite overwhelmingly positive about all of this because it's a brand you can identify with. You're from Vienna and your products are from Vienna. Basically, you could go a couple of minutes by car and you can look where the stuff is growing. And that's one of the main reasons people connect with this because, yeah, the, the stuff is growing in your neighborhood. And, of course, it makes us incredibly proud and it um, pushes us forward and we want to go even further with all of this. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. And we end today's edition of The Curator, as we like to do, with a spot of food. 
On Food Neighbourhoods this week, we headed to the historic centre of Oaxaca City to look at the culinary scene of a place often hailed as the food capital of Mexico. Your guide, Nora Hall. Today I am taking you to Oaxaca City, specifically the Centro Historico, which I had the pleasure of exploring this summer. The city of Oaxaca sits high in the mountains in the south of Mexico. Coined the food capital of Mexico, it is known for its mole and mezcal and is home to an abundance of other local delicacies. The city center is filled with houses of every color and there is a great focus on local artistry particularly the renowned textiles and ceramics from the region that are proudly showcased in the different eateries across town. Let me introduce you to some of my culinary highlights from this captivating place. First, we go to Criollo. Criollo is sat at the edge of the city center, but is very much worth venturing out for. Located in an old colonial mansion, it was established by Enrique Olvera of Pujol fame, along with chef Luis Arellano and architect Javier Sanchez. Criollo consists of different parts, the restaurant, the garden, and Casa Criollo, a small space with two rooms to rent, personally curated by Olvera and Arellano. You are met by a modest exterior, but step inside and you will find an exceptionally beautiful restaurant with great attention to detail, from the chic wooden furniture to the photography on the walls showcasing local culture and the arrangements of flowers and dried fruits hanging from the ceiling. In the front, there is a bakery or antecomedor where you can purchase pastries or bread to eat in or take away. Then follows the restaurant with a menu inspired by Oaxacan cooking techniques that serves seasonal local produce. Here you have the option to try a seven-course tasting menu. The menu also changes every week. For breakfast or lunch, you are taken to the garden, my favorite part. A large courtyard with trees providing shade, tasteful furniture in a burnt orange hue, different cooking stations, a bar, and in the middle, a large grill. Hens and rabbits walk around freely, and fresh produce are laid out on traditional ceramic bowls and plates. You can observe the chefs as they prepare the food and tend to the grill. We initially came here for breakfast and went for the pan tostado. Homemade bread filled with fried beans, guacamole, pico de gallo, quesillo and jequiteco cheese. When we heard they made their own bacon, we couldn't help but order it on the side, along with a fresh green juice and café con poleo. A refreshing cold coffee drink infused with poleo, an important herb in Oaxacan cooking, similar to a wild mint, also known as pennyroyal. Much of the menu is produced on site, and even the mosquito repellent they offer guests is homemade and smells delicious. We return for their weekend lunch the next day, where they fire up the grill and offer a platter of different meats, including pork and chorizo sausage, along with grilled pineapple, a selection of salsas, and fresh tortillas to soak it all up with. Another breakfast must-try in Oaxaca is Memelas Donavale of Netflix fame. Located in Central de Abastos, the largest market in Oaxaca, finding the stall can feel like searching through a maze, but look for the other tourists and you will get to the right place. The thing to order here, as the name suggests, are the memelas. 
Memelas are fried or toasted cakes made of masa, a corn-based dough, and it is a common snack in the region. You can choose between two salsas, salsa roja and salsa morita, along with the choice of protein. I had mine with a fried egg on top, messy and perfect. Next, we head to Las Tansantes, another stunning location in the middle of the center, framed by tall stone walls and enriched by a well-curated selection of art. The restaurant is ran with a zero-waste policy in mind. All produce is organic and local. Even the glasses you drink from are made from recycled material. They collaborate with the local glassblower workshop, and the used glass bottles from the restaurant are sent back to create more sustainable pieces. Even the ovens at the workshop run on burnt oil, recycled from different restaurants in the area. The standout dish here was the Moles Los Danzantes, a sample plate of six different moles, including yellow, red and black, and even one based on the Maria cookie. We also tried some delicious plantain fritters, filled with the traditional wedding stew from the Ismo region of Oaxaca. This was accompanied by local mezcal, recommended by the attentive staff. Then to Casa Oaxaca. We had our final meal here. It is a restaurant run by Chef Alejandro Ruiz, with a focus on traditional cooking. It is a staple on the Oaxacan culinary scene, and sitting on the terrace you have a spectacular view of the historic center, framed by the majestic mountains in the background. Your salsa is made tableside, with the staff giving you the option to choose the level of spiciness, as well as whether or not you would like to include chapelines or grasshoppers. We of course did. Then we tried a refreshing chile de agua, a type of pepper, filled with fish ceviche and a passion fruit sauce. We also enjoyed a quesadilla with wild mushrooms and ranch cream, as the mushroom season had just started, as well as pumpkin flowers stuffed with cottage cheese, sweet potato chips and mashed bananas. To finish for dessert, we had a Oaxacan chocolate toast with hazelnuts, black mole ice cream and little cubes of jellied mezcal on top. Lastly, when in search for a nightcap, we stumbled upon the bar Los Amantes Mezcaleria, which, like the rest of the places mentioned, further confirmed Oaxaca as one of the most aesthetically pleasing destinations I have ever ventured to. Testing out different mezcal cocktails is a must. Try a fruity one, as the great local fruit pairs incredibly well with the smoky spirit. A mezcal negroni is also a great option. It is also worth having a drink at one of the many rooftop bars in the city center. Oaxaca is a magical place and a joy for all your senses. A truly enriching experience and a place I hope to return to someday. I would highly recommend. For Monocle, I'm Nora Hul. Thanks, Nora. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The programme was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Tom Edwards. Do join us at the same time next week to hear more of the very best of the programming here on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.